You are a mystic in training, and you're listening to The Mystic Show. Everybody, welcome to the show. I'm Chris Curran, your host. I'm happy you're able to join me on the Mystic Show, where we talk about spirituality and mindfulness and meditation and consciousness and all the subtle, unseen parts of our existence that are the most important. And we're going to talk a lot about that today um, as we continue our unofficial summer of Vivekananda, even though this episode is being released, it's the first episode of fall, but we have two more chapters to go in uh, Vivekananda's book. But I just should mention first that new episodes are released every Friday morning, and I could not do episodes for the past two weeks because my wife and I were moving across the country. And if you've ever moved across the country, you know what that's like. If you haven't, there's a lot that goes into it, and it's very uh, time-consuming, and it's a marathon. It really is. So we're here in Colorado Springs. I'm actually sitting in my basement studio, but it's a finished basement, so it's a nice basement. And um, it's not like, you know, concrete floors and exposed wood beams and you know, hitting your head on the ceiling and, uh, and cobwebs everywhere. It's not that kind of a, of a basement. Um, and I'm also still figuring out the sound here in the basement and the rest of the house because it's pretty quiet. But anyway, I'm a, I'm a real sound engineer, so I hear everything. Anyway, you can hear us as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn Radio and our website, themysticshow.net where you can sign up for the behind-the-scenes emails, which I also, for the past two weeks, did not send the behind-the-scenes emails. Um, but you also get a cool audio download when you sign up for that email list. Uh, relax with Rumi. Hmm. Go to themysticshow.net and find out more. And a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pause Your Life. Hit the pause button on your life when things get crazy, uh, pause your life facilitates meetups and retreats. And we have a new meetup here in Colorado Springs, pause your life, Colorado Springs. And, uh, we're going to start one in Denver since Denver's only about an hour away. And our group in New Jersey is still going very, very strong. So it's been an amazing past three weeks for me. I hope it has been for you as well. Uh, the The last episode we did, which was the the last the previous chapter in this book, Raja Yoga, um, which was episode one forty four, uh, and the chapter in in Vivekananda's book is called Pratyahara and Dharana. So that was a very cool episode, and this one is great as well. We're gonna today. We're going to read the next chapter, uh, 
which is called Dhyana and Samadhi. And it's chapter 7 of his book, Raja Yoga, which was published in July of 1896. And, and yes, you can tell from some of the language that it's that old. In fact, the way in the chapter we're going to read today, he mentions religion here and there. And the religion he means is true religion, like spirituality. What I think today what we would call spirituality. You know, the essence of religion or spiritual pursuit, not just the religion where there's a church or a temple you go to and, you know, do whatever, uh, and then go home and just live your life as normal. (laughs) Uh, that obviously that's a very superficial way of practicing religion. And, um, unfortunately that's what most religious practitioners are doing and that's okay. We don't discriminate. We don't judge or anything, right? Everyone's on their own path. Um, and a lot of them are ready to, to wake up a little bit. And of course, we're all waking up. I don't mean to sound like on this show, we're all awake. Not really. We're on the way. We're on our way. <laughs> You're on your way. Thank goodness. Um, so again, this is the, from the book Raja Yoga, uh, by Swami Vivekananda, who was one of India's great saints. He lived from 1863 to 1902. And this book was published in July of 1896. We're on chapter seven. I think next week or the week after we'll do chapter eight and that will finish this book. But this has been a great book. Vivekananda is very good at explaining um, the importance of spiritual growth. In fact, in this chapter today, he he talks about that. So let's go ahead and read this. And then after we're done reading, we'll just take a sh- really short break, just a little music, no, not commercials or anything. And we'll take a short little musical break, like 45 seconds. And then I have some comments on, on this chapter. So, so let's get right to it. Again, this is chapter seven, Dhyana and Samadhi. We have finished a cursory review of the different steps in Raja Yoga, except the finer ones, the training and concentration, which is the aim, the goal, to which Raja Yoga will lead us. We see, as human beings, that all our knowledge, which is called rational, is referred to consciousness. I am conscious of this table. I am conscious of your presence, and so forth. And that makes me know that you are here, and that the table is here, and things I see, feel, and hear are here. At the same time, there is a very great part of my existence of which I am not conscious. All the different organs inside the body, the different parts of the brain, the brain itself, nobody is conscious of these things. When I eat food, I do it consciously. When I assimilate it, I do it unconsciously. When the food is manufactured into blood, it is done unconsciously. When out of the blood all the different parts of my body are made, it is done unconsciously. And yet it is I who am doing this. There cannot be 20 people in this one body. How do I know that I do it and nobody else? It may be urged that my business is only in eating the food, 
and assimilating the food and that manufacturing the body out of the food is done for me by somebody else. That cannot be because it can be demonstrated that almost every action of which we are unconscious now can be again brought up to the plane of consciousness. The heart is beating apparently without our control. We none of us here can control the heart. It goes on its own way. But by practice, men can bring even the heart under control until it will just beat at will, slowly or quickly, or almost stop. Nearly every part of the body can be brought under control. What does this show? That these things which are beneath consciousness are also worked by us, only we are doing it unconsciously. We have, then, two planes in which the human mind is working. First is the conscious plane. That is to say, that sort of work which is always accompanied with the feeling of egoism. Next comes the unconscious plane, the work beneath, that which is unaccompanied by the feeling of egoism. That part of mind work, which is unaccompanied with the feeling of egoism, is unconscious work, and that part which is accompanied with the feeling of egoism is conscious work. In the lower animals, this unconscious work is called instinct. In higher animals, and in the highest of all animals, man, the second part, that which is accompanied with the feeling of egoism, prevails and is called conscious work. But it does not end here. There is a still higher plane upon which the mind can work. It can go beyond consciousness. Just as unconscious work is beneath consciousness, so there is another work which is above consciousness, and which also is not accompanied with the feeling of egoism. The feeling of egoism is only on the middle plane. When the mind is above or below that line, there is no feeling of I, and yet the mind works. When the mind goes beyond this line of self-consciousness, it is called samadhi, or super-consciousness. It is above consciousness. How, for instance, do we know that a man in samadhi has not gone below his consciousness, has not degenerated instead of going higher? In both cases, the works are unaccompanied with egoism. The answer is, by the effects, by the results of the work, we know that which is below and that which is above. When a man goes into deep sleep, he enters a plane beneath consciousness. He works the body all the time. He breathes, he moves the body, perhaps, in his sleep, without any accompanying feeling of ego. He is unconscious, and when he returns from his sleep, he is the same man who went into it. The sum total of the knowledge which he had before he went into the sleep remains the same. It has not increased at all. No enlightenment has come. But if a man goes into samadhi, if he goes into it a fool, he comes out a sage. What makes the difference? From one state, a man comes out the very same man who went in, 
And out of another state, the man becomes enlightened, a sage, a prophet, a saint. His whole character changed, his life changed, illumined. These are the two effects. Now the effects being different, the causes must be different. As this illumination with which a man comes back from samadhi is much higher than can be got from unconsciousness, or much higher than can be got by reasoning in a conscious state, it must therefore be superconsciousness. And samadhi is called the superconscious state. This, in short, is the idea of samadhi. What is its application? The application is here. The field of reason, or of the conscious working of the mind, is narrow and limited. There is a little circle within which human reason will have to move. It cannot go beyond it. Every attempt to go beyond is impossible. Yet it is beyond this circle of reason that lies all that humanity holds most dear. All these questions, whether there is an immortal soul, whether there is a God, whether there is any supreme intelligence guiding this universe, are beyond the field of reason. Reason can never answer these questions. What does reason say? It says, I am agnostic. I do not know either yea or nay. Yet these questions are so important to us. Without a proper answer to them, human life will be impossible. All our ethical theories, all our moral attitudes, all that is good and great in human nature has been molded upon answers that have come from beyond that circle. It is very important, therefore, that we should have answers to these questions. Without such answers, human life will be impossible. If life is only a little five minutes thing, if the universe is only a fortuitous combination of atoms, then why should I do good to another? Why should there be mercy, justice, or fellow feeling? The best thing for this world would be to make hay while the sun shines, each man for himself. If there is no hope, why should I love my brother and not cut his throat? If there is nothing beyond, if there is no freedom but only rigorous dead laws, I should only try to make myself happy here. You will find people saying, nowadays, that they have utilitarian grounds as the basis of all morality. What is this basis? Procuring the greatest amount of happiness to the greatest number. Why should I do this? Why should I not produce the greatest unhappiness to the greatest number, if that serves my purpose? How will utilitarians answer this question? How do you know what is right or what is wrong? I am impelled by my desire for happiness and I fulfill it, and it is my nature. I know nothing beyond. I have these desires and must fulfill them. Why should you complain? Whence come all these truths about human life, about morality, about the immortal soul, about God, about love and sympathy, about being good, and above all, 
about being unselfish. All ethics, all human action, and all human thought hang upon this one idea of unselfishness. The whole idea of human life can be put in that one word, unselfishness. Why should we be unselfish? Where is the necessity, the force, the power of my being unselfish? Why should I be? You call yourself a rational man, a utilitarian, but if you do not show me a reason, I say you are irrational. Show me the reason why I should not be selfish, why I should not be like a brute acting without reason. It may be good as poetry, but poetry is not reason. Show me a reason. Why shall I be unselfish and why be good? Because Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so say-so does not weigh with me. Where is the utility of my being unselfish? My utility is to be selfish, if utility means the greatest amount of happiness. I may get the greatest amount of happiness by cheating and robbing others. What is the answer? The utilitarian can never give it. The answer is that this world is only one drop in an infinite ocean, one link in an infinite chain. Where did those that preached unselfishness and taught it to the human race get this idea? We know it is not instinctive. The animals which have instinct do not know it. Neither is it reason. Reason does not know anything about these ideas. Whence did they come? We find, in studying history, one fact held in common by all the great teachers of religion the world ever had. They all claim to have got these truths from beyond. Only many of them did not know what they were getting. For instance, one would say that an angel came down in the form of a human being, with wings, and said to him, Hear, O man, this is the message. Another says that a deva, a bright being, appeared to him. Another says he dreamed that his ancestor came and told him all these things. He did not know anything beyond that. But this thing is common, that all claim either they saw angels or heard the voice of God or saw some wonderful vision. All claim that this knowledge has come to them from beyond, not through their reasoning power. What does the science of yoga teach? It teaches that they were right in claiming that all this knowledge came to them from beyond reasoning, but that it came from within themselves. The yogi teaches that the mind itself has a higher state of existence, beyond reason, a superconscious state, and when the mind gets to that higher state, then this knowledge, beyond reasoning, comes to a man, metaphysical knowledge, beyond all physical knowledge. Metaphysical and transcendental knowledge comes to that man, and this state of going beyond reason, transcending ordinary human nature, sometimes may come by chance to a man who does not understand its science. He, as it were, stumbles into it. When he stumbles into it, he generally interprets it as from outside. So this explains why an inspiration 
or this transcendental knowledge may be the same in different countries, but in one country it will seem to come through an angel, and in another through a deva, and in another through God. What does it mean? It means that the mind brought the knowledge by its own nature, and that the finding of the knowledge was interpreted according to the beliefs and education of the person through whom it came. The real fact is that these various men, as it were, stumbled into this superconscious state. The yogi says there is a great danger in stumbling into this state. In a good many cases, there is the danger of the brain being destroyed. And as a rule, you will find that all those men, however great they were, who have stumbled into this superconscious state without understanding it, grope in the dark and generally have, along with their knowledge, some quaint superstition. They open themselves to hallucinations. Mohammed claimed that the angel Gabriel came to him in a cave one day and took him on the heavenly horse, Harak, and he visited the heavens. But with all that, Mohammed spoke some wonderful truths. If you read the Quran, you find the most wonderful truths mixed with these superstitions. How will you explain it? That man was inspired, no doubt. But that inspiration was, as it were, stumbled upon. He was not a trained yogi and did not know the reason of what he was doing. Think of the good Muhammad did to the world and think of the great evil that has been done through his fanaticism. Think of the millions massacred through his teachings, mothers bereft of their children, children made orphans, whole countries destroyed, millions upon millions of people killed. So we see in studying the lives of all these great teachers that there was this danger. Yet we find at the same time that they were all inspired. Somehow or other, they got into the superconscious state. Only whenever a prophet got into that state by simple force of emotion, just by heightening his emotional nature, he brought away from that state some truths, but also some fanaticism, some superstition which injured the world as much as the greatness of the teaching did good. To get any reason out of this mass of incongruity we call human life, we have to transcend our reason. But we must do it scientifically, slowly, by regular practice. And we must cast off all superstition. We must take it up just as any other science, reason we must have to lay our foundation. We must follow reason as far as it leads. And when reason fails, reason itself will show us the way to the highest plane. So whenever we hear a man say, I am inspired, and then talk the most irrational nonsense, simply reject it. Why? Because these three states of mind, instinct, reason, and superconsciousness, or the unconscious, conscious, and superconscious states, belong to one and the same mind. There are not three minds in one man, but one develops into the other. Instinct develops into reason, and reason into the transcendental consciousness. 
Therefore, one never contradicts the other. So whenever you meet with wild statements which contradict human reason and common sense, reject them without any fear, because the real inspiration will never contradict, but will fulfill. Just as you find the great prophets saying, I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. So this inspiration always comes to fulfill reason and is in direct harmony with reason. And whenever it contradicts reason, you must know that it is not inspiration. All the different steps in yoga are intended to bring us scientifically to the superconscious state, or samadhi. Furthermore, this is a most vital point to understand that inspiration is as much in every man's nature as it was in the ancient prophets. These prophets were not unique. They were just the same as you or I. They were great yogis. They had gained this superconsciousness, and you and I can get the same. They were not peculiar people. The very fact that one man ever reached that state will prove that it is possible for every man to do so. Not only is it possible, but every man must eventually get to that state. And that is religion. Experience is the only teacher we have. We may talk and reason all our lives without ever understanding a word of truth until we experience it ourselves. You cannot hope to make a man a surgeon by simply giving him a few books. You cannot satisfy my curiosity to see a country by showing me a map. I must have actual experience. Maps can only create a little curiosity in us to get more perfect knowledge. Beyond that, they have no value whatever. All clinging to books only degenerates the human mind. Was there ever a more horrible blasphemy than to say that all the knowledge of God is confined in this or that book? How dare men call God infinite and yet try to compress him into the covers of a little book? Millions of people have been killed because they did not believe what the books say, because they would not see all the knowledge of God within the covers of a book. Of course, this killing and murdering has gone by, but the world is still tremendously bound up in a belief in books. In order to reach the superconscious state in a scientific manner, we have to pass through these various steps that I have been teaching you in Raja Yoga. After Pratyahara and Dharana, which I taught you in the last lecture, we come to Dhyana, meditation. When the mind has been trained to remain fixed on a certain internal or external location, there comes to it the power of, as it were, flowing in an unbroken current toward that point. This state is called dhyana. When this power of dhyana has been so much intensified as to be able to reject the external part of perception and remain meditating only on the internal part, the meaning, that state is called samadhi. The three, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, together are called samyama. 
That is, if the mind can first concentrate upon an object and then is able to continue in that concentration for a length of time, and then, by continued concentration, to dwell only on the internal part of the perception of which the object was the effect, everything comes under the control of such a mind. This meditative state is the highest state of existence. So long as there is desire, no real happiness can come. It is only the contemplative, witness-like study of objects that brings to us real enjoyment and happiness. The animal has its happiness in the senses, the man in his intellect, and the God in spiritual contemplation. It is only to the soul that has attained to this contemplative state that the world has really become beautiful. To him who desire nothing and does not mix himself up with them, the manifold changes of nature are one panorama of beauty and sublimity. These ideas have to be understood in dhyana or meditation. We hear a sound. First, there is the external vibration. Second, the nerve motion that carries it to the mind. Third, the reaction from the mind, along with which flashes the knowledge of the object which was the external cause of these different changes from the ethereal vibrations to the mental reaction. These three are called in yoga, shabda, sound, artha, meaning, and jnana, knowledge. In the language of physiology, they are called the ethereal vibration, the motion in the nerve and brain, and the mental reaction. Now these, though distinct processes, have become mixed up in such a fashion as to become quite indistinct. In fact, we cannot now perceive any of these causes. We only perceive the effect of these three, which effect we call the external object. Every act of perception includes these three, and there is no reason why we should not be able to distinguish between them. When, by the previous preparations, the mind becomes strong and controlled, and the power of finer perception has been attained, then the mind should be employed in meditation. This meditation must begin with gross objects and slowly rise to finer, then to finer and finer, until it has become objectless. The mind should first be employed in perceiving the external causes of sensations, then the internal motions, and then the reaction of the mind. When it has succeeded in perceiving the external causes of sensations by themselves, it will acquire the power of perceiving all fine material existences, all fine bodies and forms. When it can succeed in perceiving the motion inside by themselves, it will gain the control of all mental waves, in itself or in others, even before they have translated themselves into physical forces. And when he will be able to perceive the mental reaction by itself, the yogi will acquire the knowledge of everything, as every sensible object and every thought is the result of this reaction. 
Then we will have seen, as it were, the very foundations of his mind, and it will be under his perfect control. Different powers will come to the yogi, and if he yields to the temptations of any one of these, the road to his further progress will be barred. Such is the evil of running after enjoyments. But if he is strong enough to reject even these miraculous powers, he will attain to the goal of yoga, the complete suppression of the waves in the ocean of the mind. Then the glory of the soul, untrammeled by the distractions of the mind or the motions of his body, will shine in its full effulgence. And the yogi will find himself as he is, and as he always was, the essence of knowledge, the immortal, the all-pervading. Samadhi is the property of every human being, nay, every animal. From the lowest animal to the highest angelic being, sometime or other each one will have to come to that state, and then, and then alone, will religion begin for him. And all this time, what are we doing? We are only struggling towards that stage. There is now no difference between us and those who have no religion because we have had no experience. What is concentration good for, save to bring us to this experience? Each one of the steps to attain this samadhi has been reasoned out, properly adjusted, scientifically organized, and, when faithfully practiced, will surely lead us to the desired end. Then will all sorrows cease, all miseries vanish. The seeds of actions will be burned, and the soul will be free forever. And we'll just take a quick break while we ponder that. Okay, welcome back to The Mystic Show. Uh, That was an amazing chapter, and I have some notes here to share with you on on what I was thinking. Just a quick reminder, you can go to themysticshow.net, and you can see all our previous episodes. And uh, if you want to share some of our episodes, you can share it on your social media. And you can also give us a rating or a review in iTunes or Stitcher. And we even have a Patreon campaign going where you can contribute a dollar or two per episode to help us uh, produce the show and keep it going. So uh, themysticshow.net. 
So this chapter was called Dhyana and Samadhi, and he really, for me, illuminated a lot of basic spiritual points that are so important. And, you know, this is the reason we're reading this book on the show is because this is like the core fundamentals and this is like all the important stuff to spirituality. Like he says, you know, books are not really that necessary, you know, might be a starting point, but after a little while, it's not necessary. That doesn't mean we can't read books, of course, but we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that books are the answer to our spiritual growth, right? So a few of my takeaways and, and, and points that I really liked were that he said our mind works on three levels. The unconscious, the conscious, and the superconscious. And he really did a wonderful job of explaining that, what the unconscious mind does. You know, it digests our food, right? You don't consciously think about that. It just happens. But you are still doing it. The conscious mind is obvious. You're hearing my voice. You're conscious of it. I'm speaking into a microphone. I'm conscious of that. And of course, superconsciousness, which is above normal consciousness. And those three, he also described, listen when I say it this way, unconscious, conscious, and superconscious are the same as instinct, reason, and samadhi. I like how those equate to each other. The unconscious is basically instinct. The conscious is reason, and the superconscious is samadhi. And he also brings up the fact that this it's all one mind. It's just different aspects of the same mind, and it's all your mind, which is, I, I love that. Then he had this whole section about why not be unselfish. You know, he was talking about the util, utilitarian view of life, meaning just I do what makes me happy and what can make the most people happy. Um, so, you know, Vivekananda was kind of asking these rhetorical questions. Why not be unselfish? Why don't I just rob and steal to make me happy and make other people happy? And I like how he was making the point that there is some superconscious level where we know when things are right and wrong. And we know that being unselfish is good. We know that stealing is wrong. We just know it. Well, how do we know it? Because it's part of our higher nature. So he also talked about some of the saints or mystics of the past who stumbled upon the uh, superconscious state and maybe got some transcendental knowledge or inspiration. And it's interesting. He said when someone stumbles into the superconscious state, what they do is they interpret what they receive according to their own beliefs and education. So that's why he said in different countries, truths are stated the same way, but there's a different context. So I thought that was interesting as well, because, you know, above everything, truth is the truth and it's the same for everybody anywhere. But it really shows when we're bringing in our own beliefs and education and superstition when we sort of 
we taint the truth with our own, you know, beliefs. And that's when you can tell that it's, it's sort of, it's part truth, but it's also part ego from, from the conscious level, ego from the conscious level. So that's a pretty good distinction, I think. And of course he says the yogi doesn't get into all that interpreting. The yogi just can be in a super conscious state and, and receive truth or experience truth. And that's all it is. It's, it's the yogi keeps it pure in a way. I don't know. That's, that's one of my understandings. One of my ways to understand that if, if you have a different way of understanding that, please comment on the post on the mysticshow.net. And real quick, he also says that yogis are not unique. They're the same as you or I. And this goes back to something I say quite often is that all the saints of the past and the yogis and the rishis and the sages, they were the same as you and me, but they had just attained a higher level in spirituality. And that level is available to you and I, right? You know, right now, meaning it's available now. You might not achieve it right now, but we can achieve it. That's the idea of being human, that each of us can achieve that. He says experience is necessary because books just won't cut it. I kind of mentioned that. And he also mentioned a, a deva, the word deva, which which means an, uh, a bright being, like a spiritual being. So I was thinking of this little tagline that I was going to tweet, which is really dumb, which I'm not going to tweet, but I thought I might just say it here as we're ending the show and I'm fading in the music. Um, don't be a diva, be a deva. <laughs> okay. So ending on a corny note, this is The Mystic Show. Thanks for listening. I hope you got some good inspiration out of this. Um, Again, books aren't necessary. Neither are podcasts. So maybe you and I should each go meditate now and and try and experience the superconscious state. Don't forget, all our previous episodes are on themysticshow.net, as well as links to everywhere. So as you move through your weekend and your week... Maybe talk about some of these topics with your friends or your family, or maybe write it in your journal. Sort through them. And as always, keep shining.